Today's scripture is from James chapter 1, verse 2 to 8 and uh, verse 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Consider it a pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of, of the sea blown and tossed tossed by the wind. The man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because he, he has stood the test. He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers here this morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we are in our second week in the book of James. And last week, Pastor James kicked off the book of James and did a phenomenal job, by the way, uh, I'm so excited that we get to partner with him in the work that he's starting in Oakland, uh, and I'm really grateful that he filled in last week and kicked this series off so well. We've entitled this series, Faith That Works, and there's a double meaning in that. First, the first meaning is that faith works, that true faith isn't something that just remains inside of you. It's not just a private thing or a personal thing. It's also a public thing that true faith engages in good works in this world. And as we work through the book of James, you'll find that James is the bossiest book in the Bible. That's actually one of the titles it's been given. 59 imperatives and 108 verses. You read it and you think, James must have been a hard guy to be around because he's always telling you, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do. What a lot of us don't realize, and what I didn't know until actually the last couple of weeks, is that James was really the first bishop of uh, really the first church, uh, the Jerusalem church. We think of Paul as this towering figure in the New Testament, and he was, but Paul was a missionary. Paul was always traveling around, going from place to place, starting new works, leaving, writing letters. James was a man who was grounded in a local church, and his heart in writing this letter is he saw people who aren't all that different than us, who, who claim the faith, claim the name of Jesus, were trying to follow him, but they were struggling. And to make matters worse for them, they were going through intense suffering. Christianity wasn't well-received. And so he's writing this letter saying, here's how you're gonna navigate this. And the first thing that he says is, your faith is gonna manifest itself in good works, even in the face of opposition. Now, the other meaning of faith works is that what Jesus has done for us 
should radically transform how we live, that faith actually works, that it, that it has a real effect on our lives. True faith produces in us a lasting, unshakable joy that can sustain us and empower us through all of life. Now, one of the ways that faith works, actually practically works in our lives, is that it brings wisdom. It gives us wisdom. And wisdom something that <clears throat> I think the modern church has devalued a whole lot. That for whatever reason, and there are a lot of reasons that we won't get into this morning, but I think when we think of wisdom, we think, oh, that'd be kind of nice. And so we come to a book like James, which throughout history people have looked at and said, that's a wisdom book, like a, a Proverbs or an Ecclesiastes. Uh, we don't really know what to do with it. You know, because James is different than Paul, if you've read it. Paul is making these weighty theological arguments, wading through all of these difficult issues. James is like, hey, stop doing that. Start doing this. Stop doing that. Start doing this. Make sure you never do that again. And we don't know what to do with it because it's wisdom. It's not just robust theology, although it is, but it's practical wisdom. But the Bible, you know, we neglect wisdom, I think, to our peril because the Bible tells us again and again that wisdom is more valuable than silver, it's more valuable than gold, rubies, or anything else you can desire. Proverbs 4, 7, wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost everything you have, gain understanding. Solomon's saying there's not a thing in this world, not just Solomon, the Lord inspired this. There's not a thing in the world more valuable for you to obtain than wisdom. And so this morning on Mother's Day, I figured let's, let's talk about wisdom. And let's press into what the Bible really says about wisdom because I do think it's something that many of us neglect. And so we're going to look at the need for wisdom, the nature of wisdom, and lastly, the source, how we actually get wisdom. What it, why we need it, what it is, how we get it. Starting with the need. And so for James... <clears throat> Why is he putting such emphasis on wisdom? Why does he write a book in the wisdom tradition? And the answer is because life is hard. Life is challenging. Life is complex. And life is confusing. <laughs> and trying to navigate it all is really difficult. And if you spend... <laughs> More than a few years or a few decades on this earth, you recognize that life so often doesn't make sense. And so often we don't know which way to go and which decisions to make. And the foundational theme of James's letter is that life is filled with countless trials and difficulties. And we need wisdom if we're going to navigate those things. You know, on this day when we celebrate moms, we celebrate moms, Why? they gave us life, right? And because they put up with us, kept us alive, and brought us, you know, for those of us who are adults, into adulthood. And they endured an awful lot of trials to get us there. When we think of trials, I don't want you to just think of extreme persecution of the early church, although that's part of it. This word trials, trials of many kinds, can speak to all different kinds of trials. The trials, you know, for moms that, that come starting with pregnancy, you know, and all the pains that come with it, the trials of delivery, 
the trials of having a newborn, which we've had a newborn in our house for about a decade, you know, uh, not the same one. We had different ones. Uh, and there's the sleepless nights and then the sleepy days and sleepless nights. Our kids are growing up, and so there's other trials now, the trials of schooling. What school do they go to? The trials of nutrition. How do I get my kids to eat something other than chicken nuggets, you know? There's the trials of, for a lot of you, for work-life balance, how do you do both and do it well? There's the trials of when your kids are disobedient, and how do, you, how do you discipline them well? I know a lot of moms live under this weight, this, this oppressive weight of feeling like they, they never measure up and they're never doing enough to be a good enough wife, mom, daughter, etc., that can be crushing. How do I please everyone? You know, and as Pastor Brian mentioned earlier, there are other trials that surface on this day, the trials of desperately wanting to have children and not having any. And maybe you don't have any because God has called you to a prolonged season of singleness that you don't want to be in. Or there's the trial of desperately wanting children, but God closing the womb. And you wonder, do we keep trying do we stop? What's the right way to go here? Should we, is it a lack of faith if we quit trying or, or is it a lack of faith if we keep trying? I mean, it's confusing and it's hard and it's discouraging. And James sees all of this and he writes this letter saying, life is really hard. But then he makes this audacious claim that Pastor James drew out for us last week that while the trials of life are unpleasant and deeply painful, they're not meaningless, and they're not without purpose. In fact, he says that in Christ, we can not only find strength to endure the trials, we can actually rejoice in them. We rejoice, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And that's a strange thing to say. That's the kind of thing that some Christians say to you that you wanna slap them if you're in the midst of a trial, right? Well, just count it all joy. You know, brother, count it all joy, sister. Hey, you don't know what I'm going through. Uh, but what James is saying is that trials and difficulties and suffering, they're tools that God uses to make us great, to make us more and more into the image of Christ, that God refines us, that he puts resistance in our life so that we can be strengthened and so that we can grow. Because as we're strengthened, as perseverance and endurance are produced in us, that leads to our maturity. And God's great goal for us is not just that we would profess a prayer. God's great goal for us is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. When we, when we pray and come to faith, God doesn't say, all right, you're done. He says, all right, now it really begins. And it begins a work of conforming us into the image of his son. And the trials and suffering, that's the hammer and chisel. And it hurts. But he says it's necessary and you can count it as joy because it means God is at work in your life. But here's why we need wisdom. Growing in maturity through trials doesn't happen by default. Just because trials come into your life, that doesn't mean you're going to be a better person. You tracking with me? Like we, we all know people who 
They go through really bad suffering. They go through really intense trials or difficulties. And they don't come out better. They come out worse. They come out sadder, more discouraged, more depressed, more cynical, more closed off, more hardened. But we also know people who go through trials. And we look at those trials and say, I don't know if I could even make it. Not only do they make it through, they're smiling on the other side. You know, they're walking. They're still walking. They're walking with a limp, but they're still walking. And they're filled with joy and depth that they never had before. See, trials, they're incredibly powerful. And when you go through them, they never leave you unchanged. But they change you in one of two ways. They either make you a wiser and deeper person, or they make you a fearful, angry, depressed, cynical person. And what's the difference? What's the difference? Think about the trials in your life right now. Think about the hardships or difficulties. Put in whatever word you want. Think of whatever resistance is coming at you or whatever resistance you're feeling. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's with your finances. You look at all these things. Don't you want those things to make you better, the resistance, as opposed to make you worse, stronger, as opposed to cynical? And what's the difference? And for James, the answer is wisdom. For us to actually make progress and grow through our trials, wisdom, it's essential. It's not secondary. James, verse 4, he says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then instantly says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, what James is doing here, it's like, if any of us, you know, ever struggles with this, he's saying we all lack wisdom. He says, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God. So if you want to be a person that isn't crushed by trials, but's refined by them, a person who doesn't shrivel up under trials, but instead strengthened by them, you've got to have wisdom. You need wisdom. And so that leads to the next question. Okay, then what is Wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible, it's not just knowledge and it's not having a high IQ. Thank God for a lot of us, right? I think we all know people who have a high IQ uh, and who possess, and uh, they, they have a lot of knowledge, but they really lack wisdom. I don't know about, I know a lot of smart, smart people who live seem to live in perpetual chaos, uh, and they don't have a whole lot of peace in their life. And so wisdom, it's different than just knowledge, according to the Bible. And probably the best definition I found comes from a guy named Gerhard von Rad, which is an awesome name. He's a German theologian. Uh, and I've, I've searched a lot for great definitions of wisdom. This one's probably my favorite. He says, According to the Bible, wisdom means becoming competent with regard to the realities of life. Becoming competent with regard to the realities of life, how things really happen, how things really are, and what to do about it. He's saying on a basic level, according to the Bible, wisdom is the ability to masterfully navigate life. And so you have a hard situation at work. You're wondering, what do I do here? 
Wisdom begins with acknowledging what is, acknowledging the situation for what it is, not trying to make excuses or turn your eyes from it. And then it's saying, how do I navigate this really, really well? How do I navigate this masterfully? And we need wisdom because while the scriptures are God-breathed, they're inspired, they're sufficient for our salvation, just because they're sufficient for our salvation, our growth and godliness, they actually don't give us commands on every dimension of life. You know, I think that's one of the reasons that the modern church has shied away from wisdom literature because we are a law people. We're a people who want, just tell me what I need to do. Just give me all of the directions and instructions. Give me the steps that I have to follow. And there are certainly commands and steps that God gives in the Bible. There are 10 big ones, you know, that are very black and white. Don't commit adultery. And so that shouldn't be like a question of what do I do in this situation? How do you masterfully navigate a situation like you don't commit adultery? Don't commit murder when someone annoys you. But the commands of God, they probably apply to like 5 to 10% of life. I mean, directly. The black and white commands, they speak to 5 to 10% of life and decisions. They inform the other 90%, but the other 90%, it's not black and white, it's gray. And so, how do we navigate the gray? What's the gray in your life? What are the big decisions you're facing right now? Do I take the new job? Do I stick it out where I'm at? Do we buy the new house and stay put? Is buying a new house, is that a wise move for our family? Or is that like being selfish and uh, not being generous? Do we have more children or do we stop? Do I confront this person? Do I overlook it? Do we spend this money? Do we save it? You know, most of the situations, if not all of them, the response, they're all morally allowable. Like I can make a biblical case for going either way on almost every single one of those things. So what do you do? Well, you need wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how, what to do in the 90% of life where the rules and the commands of God don't apply. And I think there are a lot of Christians who are very stunted in their growth because they're looking for a command to tell them everything to do every hour of the day. And that's not the way the Bible works. The Bible gives some very clear directions, and then it gives the whole counsel of God's word for you to read, to immerse yourself in, so that you can grow wise, and you on your own can masterfully, you know, with the power of the Spirit, can masterfully navigate things. And we need it. You know, a great example, I think, especially it's Mother's Day, so take parenting, for example. You know, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about parenting. Like there, there is no first book of parenting. There's not even really a, a chapter on parenting. In the whole Bible, there's not one chapter devoted exclusively to parenting. What the Bible does is it gives us these guardrails. And so on the right, you have the guardrail, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. And so over here, We've got this command that a good parent, I don't think that means you actually have to use a rod to discipline your child, but it means a good parent is going to bring discipline to their child. And then on the left, you've got Paul who says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. And so that's, that's the scope. How do we do this part? Right? How do we navigate? Okay, so 
I can't be completely soft on them, but don't be such a jerk or be so hard towards them that they become bitter towards you either. So is timeouts allowable? Probably, sure. Spanking allowable? Probably. Is, you know, sitting them down, having hard conversations, is coming up with creative forms of discipline like my dad did. My dad used to find my brother and I when we disobeyed. He had a running account on the refrigerator. Talk back to mom, costs five bucks. Uh, tells you something about how he saw the world, um, that it's all transactional. But I think it's allowable, you know, in the grand scope of what the Bible says. We need wisdom. We need wisdom in parenting so much. How do you raise, like, when do you let the child feel the painful consequences of their actions? When do you shower them with mercy? Anyone ever wrestled with that question? When do I just let them, yeah, they need to really feel this one. And when do I step in and say, no, they don't need to feel this one. Like they felt a lot recently. How do you raise multiple children with different personalities? You know, that's, when you have a lot of kids, you learn some things and you learn that every kid is different. Like every personality is different. And so just when you think you've got it mastered, you go to the next one. And we've been keeping files, like, all right, this, maybe this is more like our first instead of our second, you know, our third. And it's like, no, he's, he's his own thing. And how do you, how do you raise and, and instruct there? We need wisdom. And wisdom enables us to walk in righteousness when our path isn't clear and so much of life isn't clear. Now, that's a general understanding of wisdom in the Bible but we, we need it for all of life. And what James is saying here is we especially need wisdom in the midst of trials. To be able to navigate and grow through trials, you gotta have wisdom. That's the one thing you need above all else. And this runs counter to the spirit of our age. Because in our age, typically, when trials emerge in life, our first question is not, how do I navigate this well? How do I respond well? How do I masterfully step in to the situation? And in our age, when trials emerge, the first question we usually ask is, how can I solve this problem or fix this as fast as possible? Now, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this quote. He said, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. He says, for the modern, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. And the solution is a technique. And that quote might not jump off the screen to a lot of you, but it's so wise. It might be one of the wisest things and, and most prophetic words that Lewis ever wrote. What he's saying here is the question of our age is how do I subdue reality to my wishes? When things happen in life that I don't understand, how can I make it so I understand them? When things happen in life that I don't like, how can I change it into something that I like? How do I solve all my problems? And he says the answer is technique. It's technology. It's a blog post, you know, or a sermon filled with seven steps to a better you. Or I was at Barnes & Noble just yesterday with my kids, and it's all of the best sellers teaching you, here's how you get to that 
next level. We look at all the trials and we say, okay, what, what can I do to make these trials make reality conform to my wishes? You guys with me on this? I think this is born out of the fact that there, we've made great strides in science and medic, medicine and technology, which I'm grateful for, but we, we've grown arrogant through it as well. And we as a people, we have this sense that we're now in charge of the universe and that we can solve all of our problems. This is why when something goes wrong, I don't know if you've noticed this, when tragedy strikes, we as a country don't mourn anymore. What do we do? We lash out and we blame. Tornado hits. It's the government's fault. It was the weatherman's fault. It was someone's fault that this tragedy came. There's a school shooting. I'm, I'm just going to get in and get out because I think it's gun control is a complex issue. But if there's a school shooting, it's instantly like, well, we just need more laws. And we very well might need more laws. But no one can say, this is just a tragedy. And this guy's life was a tragedy, and it ended in tragedy, and it brought a whole much more tragedy. Instead, we're saying, how do we solve this? And, and don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't ask, hey, how can we grow? How can we learn? But as a whole, we as a people, we think we can control the universe, and we can't. We think we can control reality, and we can't. And that's why Lewis is saying, for the wise men of old, when hardships came, they didn't scream and rage and sue and crumble in the face of trials. For the, the wise men of old, the question they gave themselves was, how do I conform my soul to reality? To what really is? How do I acknowledge what is and then live in light of it instead of creating a false reality in my mind? You know, my pastor got a pastor, a mentor that's spoken in my life for years. And one of the things that, that he said to me throughout the years, he says, Kevin, what is, is the teacher. And the first time he said that, I was like, okay, what is, is the teacher. Then the more I thought about it, I thought, man, that's actually, re that's one of those things that sounds profound and it actually really is. <laughs> He's like, what is, what, what is before you, what is in your life that is teaching you something? You're not there to teach it something. Wisdom is addressing life as it really is, acknowledging and conforming yourself to what is. And that's really hard. And so we delude ourselves and we deceive ourselves and we delude others and deceive others because reality can be so hard to actually look and see square in the face. Reality's hard. You know, a lot of you, your marriages are in real trouble. But you don't want to acknowledge it for what it is. And so you're saying, well, it's just that we've always been like this, or it's just a rough season. But it's not just a rough season. And you in your mind trying to conform it and say, well, it's just a rough season, as opposed to like, we're in really dangerous territory. It's not helping anyone. A lot of you, you are... You are engaged in behaviors that are really bad for you, that the world would call addictions. And you say, no, it's not an addiction. It only happens every once in a while, but every once in a while seems to be every few days, a few times a week, or every few weeks. But you don't acknowledge the reality of it. 
and then say, what do I do in light of this reality? And so often in trials, I think we want to run and we want to hide and bury our head in the sand. Instead of saying, okay, what do I do in light of this and how do I grow? You know, when difficulties come, we typically respond by trying to solve the problem, eliminate issues. If we do pray, our first prayer is usually a prayer of relief, which isn't wrong. Like, it's not wrong to pray for relief or rescue or help. But the big point James is making here is that trials are going to follow us as long as we're on this earth. You know, I shared this, I think, three or four years ago that I found myself saying for about two years straight, like, it's just been a really hard season. It's been a really hard season. And I think after two years, that's not a season anymore. You know, six months is still a season in Alaska. Two years, it's like, no, this life's just really hard. And James is saying that's the whole point. Like, life is really hard. And, and don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that somehow it's going to get easier around the next bend. It doesn't. You know, my wife and I will talk with some of our friends and fellow pastors whose kids are a little older, and we're like, man, we just can't wait until they're all in school. Uh, and they're like, yeah, you'll get a little physical rest, maybe, although you'll be driving them everywhere. But wait until you experience the emotional turmoil of having teenagers. It's like, oh, well, then I can't wait till they go to college. It's like, yeah, wait until you, your kids are gone. You know, like everywhere you turn, life is filled with trials. And James is saying, God designed life in this way because God doesn't want to leave you as you are because God is not satisfied with you where you are. He loves you. He accepts you. But he looks at you like a good father or mother looks at their child and says, I want you to grow. And I want you to be a person who, is, who brings life to people around them, who knows how to serve, who knows how to chop wood and carry water, person who knows how to meet other people's needs. And so he's going to keep sending them because he loves us. If we're going to face him, we need wisdom. You know, one pastor who suffered much said in his early years, whenever he'd face trials, his first response in prayers would always be, God, deliver me. Which again, that's modeled for us in the Psalms. There's nothing wrong with that. But he said after years of going through the cycle of like hardship and trials and pain, and then, you know, a year later looks and it's like, man, I've really grown. He changed and he stopped responding first to trials by saying, deliver me. And instead he started praying, develop me. God, develop me. Make me into someone great. That's wisdom. We all desperately need it in our lives. And so the question then is, how do we get it? And I think we would all acknowledge, like, we, we really want wisdom. This is why when something bad happens, we call people or we post on Facebook or, I mean, this is why Google exists for the most part, Right? Something, something bad happens, especially something medical, and it's like, I'm going to get on, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bypass, you know, 12 years of schooling and figure this out, because I want knowledge. I want to know what to do in this situation. And so our world associates wisdom with, with knowledge, with age, experience, and while those things can be valuable, it's actually not the source of wisdom. You know, there are elderly people who are not wise people. So where does wisdom, where can wisdom be found, as Job says? 
and the consistent teaching of Scripture is that it, it's not something we earn, it's something we receive. The consistent teaching of Scripture is that wisdom is not something we accrue as much as it's something God gives to us. Wisdom is a gift. God possesses it, and then God, in his grace, he gives it to us. And the way we get wisdom, according to James, here's the one step to growing in wisdom. I won't give you seven, I won't give you three, I'll give you one. How do you grow in wisdom? You ask. You ask for it. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. This makes sense, right? If, if wisdom is being competent to the way things really are, then, then the ultimate source of wisdom is the Lord who sovereignly rules over everything in the way it is. And James is saying, if you want it, go ask him for it. And he tells us why we can ask and how we should ask. He says, the reason why we can ask is because God gives generously to all without finding fault. God gives generously to all without finding fault. Now, the literal translation is actually something like, if any of you lacks wisdom, it's even stronger. It says, he should ask, she should ask the, the giving God. And so when James brings up, you know, when, when he introduces God into this letter, the first thing he says about God is our God's a God who gives. That God is eager to bless his people. He's eager to give them wisdom. He's eager to help them navigate life. His very nature is to give. And the word translated generously here, it's a word that there's, there's, a, there's pages and commentaries on this one word because it's a word that means doesn't really mean generous in the way we think of it. It means singular. That God gives singularly. And the point is that, that God doesn't have seven different things that he does for us. He has one thing, and that's that he gives. And that's, that's what he's all about to us, singularly. He has a, a single-hearted devotion to us. He's singularly committed to our good. And so if you're sitting there thinking, I really need some wisdom for this, James says, go ask God. He loves to give. And when he gives, I love this. He says, he gives without finding fault. Amen. Thank you. He gives without reproach. Like there's a way you can give and find fault and a way you can give and be, you know, and reproach in your giving. So if your child loses a coat, let's say, hypothetical for us, but child loses their coat in the middle of winter, how do you lose your coat, you know? It's a very bright color. Try to keep it anonymous. Which child? How do you lose it? Like, I can see you a mile away when you're wearing the thing. I'll buy you a new one, and then you, as you're buying the coat for them, you're reminding them it would be even better if you wouldn't have lost the original coat. So uh, I'm giving, but I'm not giving without finding fault, right? I'm giving, but I'm not giving without reproach. And James says here, God gives without reproach. He didn't say, oh, you need wisdom because you were really dumb and you made dumb decisions and you got yourself into a horrible situation. Fine, I'll give you wisdom, but don't be so dumb. 
That's not how God works. But I think that's how a lot of us envision God. I think a lot of us, we envision God as, I will help you, because we know he helps, but I'm, I'm not going to be entirely happy about it, and I'm going to remind you of how awful you are. And James says, that's not who God is. God's not like us. If you ask, he gives. He gives generously and joyfully. He gives without reproach or rebuke. He doesn't scold us when we ask for wisdom. Oh, you're not wise enough? Oh, you haven't read your Bible enough? He doesn't reprimand us for our failures. He just encourages us to come boldly. I mean, what James is really getting at here is that we need to be a people of prayer. I was talking to a friend this week, and he's preaching the same text. He's like, I think James is speaking, there's a debate. Is this text, the wisdom in this text, particularly about trials, or is it for all of life? And I kind of laugh at that. Like, what part of life doesn't have trials in it? Maybe some of you have much easier lives than I do. I can't think of any significant stretch of life where it was like, there's no trials and everything's easy. And James is saying, in the midst of it all, ask God. He gives, and he stole this idea from his brother, Jesus. And there's a lot of parallels, as we'll see, between James's letter and the Sermon on the Mount. And he stole this whole thing. He's the giving up from what his brother Jesus said in Matthew 7. Hear these words with fresh ears. See them with fresh eyes. This is Jesus talking to you. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is unwaveringly, unreservedly, uncalculating, uh, he's absolutely committed to our good, and he's eager to bless. And I think so many of us, we struggle in trials because we struggle in prayer. I think so many of us, when the hardships come, we struggle because we don't, we don't know how to pray, or we don't pray, or maybe when we do pray, we don't ask for wisdom. And again, I'm not saying this is wrong. But if all of our prayers are simply God change all of these things, that's, that's us trying to tell God how to run the universe. If our prayers never get to the place God change me so that I can navigate this well. But I think the reason we pray, the reason we struggle to pray has less to do with time, distractions, mechanics, because prayer can feel awkward. I think the real reason prayer feels awkward is it has more to do with our understanding of God than it does uh, the mechanics or our understanding of prayer. What I mean is, I think a lot of us, most of us, all of us maybe, by default, we don't have this understanding of a God who's just eager to give. 
And so we struggle to pray and think about our prayers, you know, and all the superlatives and all the different names we bring. And we bring all of this. It's like we're almost trying to bribe him. Be like your child coming to you. You know, in the midst, we're in the midst of trials and we're like, God, I really, really, like you're, you're glorious, and you're holy. Could you please give me? It'd be like your child coming to you when they're really thirsty and saying, I, I love you. You're the best. You're the greatest dad ever. You're the greatest mom ever. Here's all the great things that you've done throughout all of history. Can I please have a cup of water? Now, in a way, it's like, yeah, thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. But in another way, you'd look at your child and say, why do you think you have to butter me up for me to give you water? I'm eager to give. That's why we should ask and then how we should ask. God is wholeheartedly committed to our good, our growth, our flourishing. That's why we ask. But then James says there's a way we should ask and a way we shouldn't. And the first time you read these verses, they're a bit startling or uh, disruptive. And I, I would say you have to hold it together. James just said God's eager to give and bless. He says, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man in all that he does, unstable in all that he does. I think the reason this text is jarring is because who of us doesn't struggle with doubt from time to time? Anyone? We, we all have our doubts. Never. <laughs> we all have our doubts. And you read the Bible and you see that the greatest saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament all had their doubts too. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then he did a whole bunch of things that were born out of doubt and the goodness of God. Same with Moses, David, Peter. So James isn't saying if you ever have questions or you're ever struggling, you're ever wrestling, God's never going to give you anything. What he's saying here, the key word is this word unstable, or unstable and then the phrase double-minded. It's literally, it's a word that a lot of people speculate James actually made up. It means to be double-souled. He's saying that there's a kind of person who's got a singular soul, like a, an aim where it's like, I'm really, I'm pointing the direction of my life. Now, not everything I do might be perfectly obeying, but I've pointed the direction of my life towards God and I'm working to grow into who he wants me to be. And then you have the double-souled person who it's like, yeah, sometimes I do this and then sometimes I'm this person over here. It's a person with a divided heart. One person called it spiritual schizophrenia. That it's a person who, who never actually makes a decision to seek God's face wholeheartedly. It doesn't mean they seek it perfectly, but there's a difference. Are you guys with me on that? There's a difference between saying I want to grow and, a dip, and then like, oh, I'll do some spiritual things sometimes in my life. And James says that person that double-souled person, he compares them to a wave of the sea, not like that they're going to crash on some rocks, although they probably will. What he's saying is like the waves of the sea, how they never have the same shape and they're always moving and the environment and conditions always shift and change and change them. He's like, that's that person. A person who doesn't have a singular focus and aim in life, but who has all these different aims, then 
they're always changing and shifting in the midst of circumstances. See, James, there's a wordplay of sorts. God is singularly committed to us. And James is saying, you be singularly committed to him. I'm going to close by saying this. When you, you find yourself as a s- spiritual schizophrenic, because uh, we all do at times, we all feel that. Some of you, maybe you're in that place today. Some of you, I mentioned the wave, and you're like, that's kind of me. Like, I feel very unstable and without an anchor. So I want you to know that God cares for you more than you can imagine. And that God, God is eager to give and he's eager to bless. And if you feel like you're in that place, cry out to him and he'll answer you because that's who he is. And we know, you know the greatest demonstration of God's commitment to us, God being for us, was when he gave us his son who died for us and who rose from the grave to conquer death. And so when we come together to the table to feast, this is a meal of remembrance where we remember what Christ has done for us. And so if you're here and you're a believer, we encourage you to come forward to take part in the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you're visiting with us and you're, you follow Christ, we encourage you to take part as well. The way we do communion here is you tear off a piece of the bread and you dip it in either the juice or the wine. And let this be a reminder that God is wholeheartedly committed to you and you can go to him seeking wisdom because he really wants to give it to you. He might give it to you if you don't pray, but he certainly will give it to you if you ask. And if you're here and you're not a believer, I encourage you to put your faith in Christ to turn to the Lord who created you so that you may you know, have an eternal security but also be able to navigate life in the here and now well. Let me pray.